people of Earth. If you are hearing this, you are receiving a signal from another planet. Fanboy planet. Watch animated chicks with inflatable breasts. You might be a Trekkie. Sit back and watch as the Uber geek goes and kicks it up a notch. Turn to the letter F in your dictionary and add this word to your vocabulary. Take a look, cause I'm the real McCoy. Damn it, Jim, I'm not a doctor. I'm just the definition of a fanboy, Go, I'm, I'm at 12, I'm almost at 13. Uh, I'm at 18. I got one of my proudest wow. moments, as I think I posted on Facebook, is I got to Jason Salazar, who had infamously posted negative things about <laughs> Pokemon Go. Uh, he's hooked, he's playing. <laughs> and uh, Well, you work in Pokemon Central. Downtown San Jose is like, I was down there just for a little bit on... Uh, but you know what's ironic? I've been I've been on vacation, so I haven't actually been downtown to see that. I thanks for confirming it yeah. for me. We were um, just we were just down. Um, we went down to uh, Camera Twelve to see the Barco Star Trek. And how was the Barco experience for you? You know, I, I don't want to uh, negate too much of what the you, you you did a very nice article on Barco and Star Trek. I. Having seen a number of of the shorts at Cinequest yeah. that are fully Barco, and having now seen two films where I've seen it non-Barco and I've seen it Barco, I'm not really interested in Barco until the whole film is done that way and is planned that way. Well, and that's what's coming, and that's yeah. fair. The, the, yeah. the, it, the, the scenes, there was actually two things that really bothered me about it. In, in this particular implementation of it. And it's just a tool. It's a tool that the director has to use. Yeah. Um, and there was a scene where it's in the middle of a, a giant space fight. So, of course, all the exterior shots are uh, using all screens, extra wide space. For just a fight. second, though, I started thinking you meant that there was a space fight with giants in it, which would have been <laughs> awesome. <laughs> right. If if Star Trek Beyond turned into a remake of Space Giants, I really regret not seeing it yet. Yeah. Uh, um, but but anyway, so you know. so you're you're outside and you're on the three screens, and then it flashes inside the ship because there's some kind of status thing going on in the ship, and it jumps down to the one screen. But that scene is only like 15 seconds long, and then it jumps back to the full screen. And a couple times like that, it almost strobed the effect. So you're saying I could go see it today. Yeah. in L.A. and not worry about it. I, You know, I don't think you're missing too much. I'm actually recommending people see it in standard 2D, too, because I don't think that the 3D was particularly... Um, you know, I, the Barco wasn't in 3D, and uh, I saw the IMAX 3D on Friday night, or Friday morning, and the um, I wasn't all that impressed. So I'm actually saying it's a great... I, I love this film. It's best of the three that they've done so far. Um and, I gotta say, Justin you know what was really impressive? Brought it home, you know. In IMAX 3D. Yeah. Which is now too late because they only had it for a week because Star Trek Beyond's kicking out was Ghostbusters. Oh, really? Ghostbusters in IMAX 3D, they used it really well. Okay. Now, I can see so, that, though, so that they, things flying around in the, in, the, in the personal space of stuff, but there's not a lot of that happening aside from some fight scenes. It's mostly yeah. the yeah, exterior but, but the, action. But the additional, th the, the additional thing they did was was kind of letterboxed it. 
So the ghosts and, and the plasma streams um, pushed out of the letterbox. Oh, that's interesting. So it really it, it made the 3D pop even more. Yeah. And that was just like things that had not startled me when I saw it in 2D startled the crap out of me. <laughs> a couple of the ghosts attacking were like, oh, oh, that was well done. Oh, that's interesting. You know, because it really did feel like it was going into my Well, that's that's cool. I mean, that and, sounds, again, that sounds like the director had a plan for how he's going to yeah. use the 3D. Yeah. 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 So I, I like that. So anyway, you're telling me Pokemon. Uh, I've discovered there's a Pokestop here in, uh, in Studio City. Uh, that's where I am, uh, is the Brady Bunch house. Really? There's like a it's a neighborhood with um, with no other poke stops, no activity. And Are they all like, grass oh, Pokemon? There's a little blue. There's the, there it is. I go and it's the exterior of the Brady House. Wow. <laughs> I'm not even sure if somebody lives there. And I'm not even sure, but you but you you know gives the history again. We talked about that at, like I think on the last podcast uh, that, that we were in, in uh, the same city. Uh, <laughs> at least was that you can learn a lot of history. Uh, you know, there's whoever is writing this stuff. There's, um, you know, there's some uh, on the Poké stops. There's some interesting little commentary, and then that, there it is. There's the Brady Bunch house. So uh, it's 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 fun. Well, uh, this is Derek McCaw, editor in chief of FanboyPlanet.com, and we are podcasting uh, a comics interview show, a post Comic Con. A set of a series of interviews and uh, news of the week. And, of course, keeping it all together, I'm still remote in Los Angeles and on the phone, so, again, apologize for the tinniness, uh, but keeping it all together and making me sound better than I have a right to sound right now. I'm Rick Brett Snyder. Podcast producer extraordinaire, which really is a better title than Moral Compass, don't you think? Anyway, uh, so we've got <laughs> some news. Him. We've got some news this week uh, as well, but we've got a lot of interviews. So let's get to, we got breaking news, um, which is just posted uh, that... Uh, Moments uh, ago. Mad Magazine cover artist uh, and parody artist and, and, and comics artist. and I mean, because he was an EC artist too, wasn't he? Way yeah. back when, Jack Davis... Jack Davis has passed away at the age of 91, an incredible run, uh, an incredible artist, caricaturist, and uh, did a lot of it in the advertising. But again, let's, let's talk about the career. Uh, some, of, some of the most, I think he did draw the most infamous EC uh, Tales from the Crypt story. Uh, oh, he's the artist right. yeah. on that baseball that baseball where they, they get revenge on the player and they use uh, his viscera uh, as uh, as the diamond and they use his head, uh, maybe his heart as the ball. Um, one of the things that basically Jack Davis single-handedly, and he did not really, but he brought about the Comics Code Authority uh, and censorship by gleefully drawing. Well, you know, the thing is, he was ahead of his time. I mean, that, that's the, the it's it's almost tame because his art always ventured on the cartoony, and uh, you know, I never took it seriously. It was gruesome. It was fun. I loved when he drew parodies, uh, Mad Magazine, as they called them, satires, though they weren't. You know, the the movie parodies and the TV parodies, and I loved his covers and. I think was it him or Frank uh, who drew um, the Mad 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 World yes. poster? Uh, no, I was I was looking at this poster as while we were talking. American Graffiti, yes, Bananas, Animal House, 
That's right, Animal House poster. My I mean, gosh, yeah. A ton, I mean, you just go through this. Inspector Clouseau. Yeah, a uh, ton yeah. of of iconic movie posters from my youth. I think and, he was one of the contributors to... There was a whole bunch of artists who did Little Annie Fanny and Playboy. I think he did. I'm pretty sure he was one of them. Yeah, um, I, I think so. Because um, that was Will Elder, uh, Harvey Kurtzman. Although, you know, Kurtzman's work could be close because they were coming from the same stable you know they they heavily influenced each other so his, uh, you know his, I, his poster is specialized in like just a mass of people and everyone's doing something from the film and they're all like you know recognizable scenes after you've seen the film it just like, oh yeah it was a very it was a style that he really he really created he was a true caricaturist cartoonist and and like i said it, it felt very cartoony but it also felt very real you know, and he captured human behavior really well. And so uh, a grand run, uh, we come to celebrate Jack Davis and 91 and, and still active. You know, I mean, I, I think he was turning out art until like last year. So, uh, you know, it, it's a loss, but it's, but it's a loss in there was, there's so much to go back over and enjoy. So, uh, thank you, Jack Davis for the years of, of pleasure and for influencing my childhood in such a sometimes weird weird way as every every mad magazine person did uh anyway uh we're gonna focus before we get to the interviews right about the news up top which is you know basically is comic con uh is post comic con information uh first of all you saw on monday night what had its world premiere at comic con friday night and i did not attend but you saw it monday night at the um uh fathom event right the Killing Joke, which is now available on DVD and Blu-ray, which feel it has a lot more controversy than it should. That has less to do with even the original content. The the controversy is kind of weird. You know the the thing about the Killing Joke is people forget what a slim volume that is. The whole story is <laughs> well, it's not about, even a graphic novel. To it's me, about it's about fifty a pages. Novella. Yeah, it's about one issue of the current Dark Knight uh, book. Um, except it came out on time and, uh, <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, anyway, yes, sorry. But so it's, even with the padding, it's not 90 minutes long. The, the fathom event started with, um, a short about the history of the film, which originally we were told that they were going to have some specials at, after the film, but they led with this one that kind of went over the importance of the killing joke. Uh-huh. And then it went into the it went into the film, and then afterwards there were two shorts. Um, oh, there was a thing from uh, early. There, it opened with a thing from um, Mark Hamill talking about uh, getting the getting the role and his reluctance to continue it after a while, and then he kept on getting drawn back into it, and um, and the fact that they were doing the Killing Joke, and he couldn't turn that up. Uh, he really does come across as or like turn the, that down. Uh, yes. Turn turn that down. He 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 turned it. To he turned it up. He turned, yeah, I'm about to. He turned right. it to eleven. Um, yeah. So the uh, so he turned it. Anyway, go ahead. His uh, his uh, his lead into the film. The film starts about you know, about twenty minutes of stuff that we didn't get in the graphic novel, which is primarily. A new story, and this is where most of the controversy is. Yeah. Um, about how Batman and Batgirl were working ahead of time, 
and I had I've had people who I don't think saw them saw the movie complain about that there's this relationship between Batman and Batgirl, and it's really only one instance, and it's something she basically instigates. Well, you know, I, I mean, I, not having seen it, the thing is that when you go back to that to the debut of that Domino Dare dare doll uh but when barbara gordon became batgirl in like 1966 or 1967 in the comics uh it was it was not to get batman's attention now in the animated universe in batman beyond it was not just implied it was explicit that they had dated that they had a relationship before she uh retired from being batgirl and became the new commissioner gordon yeah. Um, so it's not without precedent within the animated universe. It's, I think True. I understand that part of the controversy is that already it's, it's a story that if you're familiar with the material and, and overall it, it you know, it, it's, it's tough stuff. No, um, True. you well, know, but, it's, it's dark, but, but what, what I'm saying, let me finish it is that Barbara, by adding in a saints relationship that she became Batgirl in order to to attract the attention of Batman kind of takes away the strength of the character. But what people are forgetting is the character didn't become that strong until, rightfully so, there were creators angry about what had been done to Batgirl as a result of the killing joke. Yeah. And, you know, and there are many quotes, uh, a- anecdotes around around the killing joke in which people whose work I admire and people that I now know personally, um, there are quotes that like no one denies that you just kind of go, that's just ugly, you know? And, uh, it's a little awkward there. I won't repeat those things, but it's just, you know, it's always been a book mired in controversy, but the other thing is that by adding that stuff, it, it, it weakens the character even further. And, and you know, I, I and even Bruce Tim said said he produced it because it kind of had to be done, not because he liked it or wanted to do it. That's that's all true. The idea that they added this stuff at the beginning of the story, where the story doesn't really touch on Batgirl at all, right? Because she's just and Barbara Gordon. She is Barbara Gordon, and her involvement in the story is really something to ha- having something horrific happening to her is what's supposed to set Gordon off. Yeah. So she's not the focus. She's, she is the, where the violence is enacted, but she's not the focus of the violence. If you get my distinction, the, the thing about the movie, we really don't get a sense that they have had a relationship before. And it really feels kind of like they haven't been working together very long. Yeah. And she's still taking direction from him. Um, so it's a Batgirl that we really haven't haven't seen at all before. So I, I've heard people say, well, it, it uses the film to make her make, objectify her such that she identifies herself only by virtue of um, the male, you know, which is a common common complaint in films. But I think it was a complaint that you'll have to you'll have to comment on it. I I didn't see it so overtly i think that it was a complaint looking for a place to settle in this film so um well i'm gonna i'm gonna say historically the reality is um you're right it's a a complaint 
looking for a place to settle, and it's a it's a product of its time that was ugly then and shocking. I mean, this is also this came out of the time that we dialed into whether or not we we're going to kill Jason Todd. Yeah. Uh, um, and the other thing is they are fictional characters, but I, I, I and this is not to backpedal or soften uh, to try to mollify any criticism of it. Because here's what I'm going to say is that if it wasn't Alan Moore and Brian Boland, if the book itself didn't look so good, if other creators had not taken the the crap sandwich that they were handed with what happened to Barbara Gordon, which is ugly, which was recreated, by the way, in the uh, Birds of Prey uh, WB, I guess I think it was still WB then, um, that series that was, you know, because they used Oracle, one of the strongest, best, most empowering characters uh, in DC. Uh, it was Barbara Gordon's identity as Oracle when she was paralyzed from the waist down and still proved herself to be a fantastic well, I shouldn't say still, proved herself to be a fantastic mind, which she's always there, but nobody used it, you know, um, and you put it in that context, great things came out as a result of Killing Joke, but as a story, and even Alan Moore admits this, the Killing Joke is not that great. The and the movie, it, yeah, the, the movie actually, uh, stay for the, the somewhat post-credits scene, um, because they do bring Barbara back at the end and it is it is much more a response that I think talks talks about she is her own woman um, at this point and she's yeah it, it is it is the re-rise of, of her as a, as a character uh, I mean I think honestly the, the best thing that's coming out of this animated film is that they released the trailer for Justice League Dark <laughs> And I did, the preview I, that they I'm didn't gonna show get that at, at the Fathom event. They didn't show that, no. And, and I don't have the DVD yet. I mean, I know I probably do at home, but I'm not home. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the, that that you've got Swamp Thing, you've got Constantine. That you brought Matt Ryan, the TV show Constantine, who was a perfect Constantine, back in uh, as the animated one. You've got Zatanna. You've got uh, Black Orchid, Dead Man. Uh, Nicholas Turturro as Dead Man is hilarious. It's such a gr- it's such a great choice. Um, but of course, probably Andrea Romano directed it and uh, did the voice direction, and she always makes fantastic choices. But um, you know, that's the most exciting thing about Killing Joke for me. Um, and the interesting thing, and if you do feel that Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill being the darkest, one thing I saw, I'm gonna and I, I'm gonna put up photos, is that um, Viewmaster is getting an upgrade in a couple of months. The uh, the virtual reality Viewmaster from Mattel, yeah. And there's there's a special edition Viewmaster Batman the animated series adventure, which Kevin and Mark came back to voice Batman and the Joker. So cool. you know when Mark Hamill says he keeps getting dragged back in, he wants to put it to rest. I kind of think the lady doth protest too much, yeah. Because he comes back all the time. Um, but it's great, because we want him to. But um, it, it is interesting. Uh, so, there's just, a lighter side. Just to close on the killing joke, though. Yeah. So, like I said, there's like 20 minutes at the beginning. There's an ending that isn't from the book. Because it really would have been dark or weird to end on the actual ending of that, of the graphic novel. Yeah. Uh, which, I think, in current current versions, doesn't end there, because there's a lot of additional material in the book post, post that end of the story. But... The part that is just purely the killing joke is extremely well done. Uh, the and it it 
certainly uses the Brian Bolan um, layouts and art styles and 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 just placement of every every imagery, every mm-hmm. bit of composition um, in a way that people are saying this isn't an accurate representation of the story. It is probably one of the, the most accurate representations of a graphic novel gone to animation that I've seen in a long it's time. It's the closest it could get with that art. The only buddy, the only artist who would have worked, you know, that they could adapt better was Darwin Cook. Yeah, you know, because oh, of course, already yeah. he had come out of the animated series. Yeah, to create the New Frontier, yeah. and his art style was heavily influenced by that. But that's interesting, you know. And uh, if you want to see another great, I don't know, if, I don't know if it's available on DVD, but. Because it was a controversial episode of South Park, the one with Muhammad that was banned for a while. I don't know if it's still banned, but the but it's really the plot is the is the revenge of Scott Tenorbid right. uh, against Cartman. There's an entire sequence which is the last. It's Cartman going to find Scott Tenorman, and it is basically lifted out of the last 15 pages of the Killing Joke. Interesting. <laughs> Down to the throne, the Joker's throne, the color scheme, everything, but it's done with South Park characters. And not a lot of people have played commentary to it because because I'm not sure that the Comedy Central has allowed that to be shown after its initial airing. Yeah. But it is a, it is a brilliant uh, pastiche. But that's a side note. Let's get to other fun news out of uh, Comic-Con, uh, which is that uh, there were a lot of trailers, and I applaud oh Warner Brothers for getting over themselves and just releasing them almost immediately. They had their panel at Hall H, and boom, suddenly every trailer was available. Yep. And that's great. And the only one trailer that really wasn't was Guardians of the Galaxy BT, which didn't really have a trailer. I guess it was just it was kind of footage that they had, that they had cobbled together. Um, I mean, I think it's done. It's done with uh, with uh, principal photography, but you know, James Gunn said, like you know, the special effects aren't quite in place and blah blah blah, you know. But um, and he says if it shows up on a cell phone pirate video, okay, <laughs> because you can't see how bad it'll look, how bad it looks, <laughs> you know, because it's shot on a little cell phone. Except as you pointed out before we started recording, um, cell phones are getting better, but uh, still. That's okay. I would respect that, and I've said that before, is that I want them to show me what they're ready to show uh, yeah. to get out there. And Comic-Con yeah. is a different feeling. But the fact that you know that, that Warner Brothers dropped, let's start with Justice League, which changes everything after Batman v Superman as far as tone, uh, unless those are the only funny two and a half minutes of the of the movie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can't I can't believe that, and and just the idea that it's it's a breath of fresh air for that whole franchise. Just like it's like we've all been holding our breath to to mix the metaphor. I'm going to tell you something quite honestly that 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 the sequence with the Flash, yeah, made me do a 180. Oh, I, I totally I hated him. Totally. In, in Batman v Superman, and it, it was based on just a couple of shots, but the fact that you turned it around and said, okay, and as I've had a friend say, it's like, that Flash is really more Wally, like Wally at 19, but that's okay. Yeah. No, I, I, I had the same exact, I went, this is really cool. And it's, it's kind of weird because he's kind of a, he's kind of a mix uh, between the, the TV Flash and oddly enough, uh, Quicksilver from the X-Men movies. Yeah, you know, and um, 
David Busby, a longtime reader who uh, used to write in a lot to Fanboy Planet. I don't think you, you've. I think it was before you actually uh, started doing the podcast. Was uh, it's a guy I just remember from. I went and commented when I posted on the Fanboy Planet page on Facebook that uh, that basically it looks like what they're really doing is making Bruce Wayne and Barry Allen into the Tony Stark and Peter Parker relationship. Yeah, I can see that. And I'm like, that's fine. I don't care. <laughs> you know, he says, no, I'm not. So I'm not criticizing you either because if it works and it's entertaining, that's what I want to see. And uh, I feel well, like the, that's the Barry Allen, Bruce Wayne. He says, you're saying that like it's supposed to explain who you, are. <laughs> what you're doing, sitting in my second favorite chair. And Jason Momoa as Aquaman was oh, just, God. which, by the way, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't seen this trailer yet, it is on Fanboy Planet. You can go to the, uh, you know, just uh, comic, uh, yeah, fanboyplanet.com slash tag slash comic con 2016. And uh, you can find a list of all the trailers. Although I should probably just gather all the trailers together onto one page. I know some sites have done that. Yeah. And, but I'm still going through some of the trailers and finding them and posting, uh, you know, but, uh, Dude, him downing the last bit of that JB bottle and dropping it to the ground is like, we got hard drinking Aquaman. Which he would be, wouldn't he? I mean, well, of course, he's in the water all the time. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I, I, you know, I like that vision of a very mysterious Aquaman, you know, because it's not, that's the thing is, by, by starting with Justice League, one thing, you know, since they're kind of reverse engineering the solo films, one thing that that they're doing that the Marvel Universe, Cinematic Universe, really the pioneers, I mean, I, I know this is not a criticism of what Marvel has done, is, you know, they're slowly exploring different worlds. Whereas, as by starting with Justice League, you're essentially saying, like, Oh crap! We're going to Atlantis and right off the bat, we've done Am- you know we've done Paradise Island. There's clearly there's this other species, you know. I, I mean, it's just it, it's it's opening itself up because Suicide Squad is going to have Enchantress before Marvel gets a chance to release Doctor Strange. The DC Cinematic Universe is going to have magic, unequivocally, yeah. undeniably, magic. Um, it's not in the Suicide Squad trailer, which they did a, a longer Suicide Squad. I mean, and there it is. That's how great Warner Brothers' reaction is last year, uh, to compare it to last year. Last year, when the Suicide Squad trailer leaked, there was this message that said we would, you know, we're annoyed. They were really pissy about it. No better word for it. We were, and, and they released the high definition, and they were really annoyed that they had to. And that was the lawyers. And this year, what what they they didn't even bother taking off the <laughs> beginning that said, "Hey, Hall H." You want to have some fun? And showed Suicide Squad. Right. They left that on what they put on t- onto YouTube yeah. officially. And I'm like, that's great. I mean, just admit it. This was the Comic-Con joy because because not everybody can get into Comic-Con. You know, and, and let's not pretend it's anything other than it was. But that Suicide Squad trailer was, even with only its opening in two weeks, it's like, wow, that got me even more excited about that about that movie. But you have Magic. You have Atlantis. You have Paradise Island. Right off the bat, they're a fully formed. Although I realize this, uh, it's uh, you know find this, uh, when that first poster of Jason Momoa's Aquaman was assembled. The seven, uh, it's not assemble. I can't remember what word uh, Zack Snyder used. Um, unite the seven, maybe. Um, uh, w- was that there aren't seven? Right. There are six. Right. And I and I was thinking, I was like going. I was I was typing up and writing it and going. Wait. I, 
I can't think of the seventh because Green Lantern because they're actually holding Green Lantern back to introduce the core, which absolutely makes sense if they're going to fight Steppenwolf in one, which there's no in- indication of who the villain is right. in that trailer, which is great. Oh no, the, but the, the, that, I was going to want to bring that up. This perfect point. That trailer is great purely on dialogue and character interaction, which are mm-hmm. things that were missing from the last two films that they've done. Although I'm going to say something really bad. I gotta re- I got, I've got to write my review, but I watched Batman v Superman, the ultimate edition. Yeah. And it is better. You know, I, uh, I saw Drew Campbell yesterday and he's, he did not see it in the theaters and he watched the expanded edition. And he said, boy, if it was worse than that, it was pretty bad. It's yeah, it's better. It's not great. It's still very muddled and overstuffed, but things that should have been there in the first place, showing Clark Kent to be a good investigative reporter and why he gets uh, mad, uh, why he's got a got a you know he's angry at Batman. The they basically have a whole, have a whole bunch of sequences showing the consequences of what happens in. Uh, what happens to the to the people around the people that Batman throws in jail? Uh huh. And it's it's an interesting take. And then Lois Lane has a whole subplot of proving, like the whole thing about the the African warlord thing, which made no sense to me in the movie. There's actually right. an entire subplot explaining it and 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 clearly connecting the dots as to how Lex set it up. Did they identify Jimmy Olsen as Jimmy Olsen? They did. He uh-huh. goes. He says, "Hi, Lois Lane. I'm Jimmy Olsen." Okay. That's all it would have taken. Yeah. That's all it would have taken. Oh, yeah. And you know, it, it, and so it's not great, but it's it's better. It is better. So yeah. Anyway, so but one, but let, let's let's move on because we we've been on Justice League and there's like Wonder and there's Woman. Wonder Woman. That was you know as as much as the Justice League was character in action and dialogue done right, Wonder Woman was so much action done right. The, yeah. The I, I'm still I still close my eyes and I see that scene where she she comes into the room puts her shield down on the ground and slides across the room on her shield while she's uh, I'm just it's a move you haven't even seen Captain America do you know <laughs> well, and there's the challenge you have two shield bearing heroes right what can they, <laughs> they got to raise the stakes it's like it, it and it's it's it was just sitting it's this snow dish right you've been looking at it all the time. <laughs> Well, and, and but it also has the character point, which is that they brought in Etta Candy, and suddenly I'm like, oh, I yeah. can hardly wait oh, yeah. to see Etta Candy. Yeah. I like a her character story. I couldn't care less about normally. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, oh, well played, well played. I'm totally, totally into that. Yeah, I, I mean, that's yes, yes, that and the Suicide Squad. I'm like, okay, DC, you, I mean, Warner Brothers, you got it. I mean, and you know, here's the thing. In my, I was talking to Carl. And his wife Susan last week, uh, Car D'Angelo and Susan Avalon, and I said, you know what I'm waiting for is that again that Marvel Comics: The Untold Story for DC that 30 years in the future. I think Jeff Johns has gone completely Machiavellian and let Batman be Superman suck, <laughs> so that he could step in and look wow. like the savior. Wow. Because you know what else happened to Jeff Johns this week was announced. What? He's the president of DC. Holy moly! What? Yeah. Apparently, there's many presidents. I but, thought you were going to say he was the running mate for no. Yeah, uh, um, I might vote for a Jeff Johns ticket. I might. It, you know what the hell? Um, no, he's not only is he chief creative officer 
of DC Entertainment, but he hasn't been named president. He still answers to Diane Nelson, and he still, uh, and as the article say, apparently this decision was made like three or four weeks ago, but nobody bothered to talk about it. Wow. <laughs> and so <laughs> Hopefully they didn't here, told Jeff. So here's the consequence. You know, now he's, I mean, he's in charge of DC Studios, of DC Films, uh, and the thing is, what no one seems to be sure right now is, does Dan DiDio and Jim Lee, do they have to answer to him? Hopefully. I kind of think so, hopefully, because again, uh, so far in DC Rebirth, now I haven't read last week's comics, because I was at Comic-Con, so I didn't pick up any. I'm going to go today. Um, I don't... I, there hasn't been a DC Rebirth book where, even if I didn't like it, like it wasn't for me personally, There wasn't. there's not a Rebirth book that I think is bad. You know the worst one that I, I read last night, the one that I was least impressed with, was New Superman. I I I just went. This is you know, I I'm not enjoying this book. I understand what Gene's trying to do. Yeah, and it's interesting, and I think that we should reach out and see if we can get Gene to talk about it. Um, I kind of let left him alone this con because like he's in San Jose, he's so close to us. We can set this up, and we should. And he's told me that we should. So um, it it wasn't I, bad, but it didn't live up to my expectations of what mm-mm. I wanted that book. No, to no, 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 no. I agree. I, 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 or at least I understand what you're saying. I, I like it because it's a different perspective. It's something. Any book that's giving us something we haven't seen before. Yeah. Uh, you know, and exploring a new idea culturally. But I kind of uh, felt like I'd seen it before. I felt well, I felt like it's super. It was Superboy and the and the. Uh, well, the, it is Superboy, but it's Chinese Superboy. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, is there a difference? And and apparently, and I started reading up about it because I think the last time we talked, you had said something about the culture. It felt like it was too. Um, it was like just Americanisms, but apparently there is a big clash in Shanghai wow. ab- about that about the wealthy who are you know or, or or basically those that are considered kind of the haves that there's a, a growing division they're having the same problem we have here uh-huh. um and there's an arrogance and um you know so it's it's interesting i want to see how it plays out i'm going to give it my traditional three issues yeah and then if it doesn't if it doesn't pay off in three or, or really do something that holds me you know then i'll i'll get away but that they're taking that they're taking risks that don't feel like like they're pandering to a base, okay, and that they're actually bringing joy in rebirth. You know, I'm all for it. So that's. But on, that's, the, other, that's, on the other hand, three issues were three inches in on Superman, action, Batman, detective, and loving them. Yeah, loving them, loving them. The only thing that I have haven't read yet is Nightwing, so I'm not sure there. But you know, I, uh, I yeah, I'm enjoying that. Let's get back to trailers, which is Doctor Strange. Yeah, I mean, good lord. The latest one felt like more of the same, but that's not a bad thing. You know, the latest Doctor Strange trailer. Yeah, it did have it did have the teach me moment, which was yeah, you know. Well, there it is. We, you know, I think that this is, and it's been a while since the Marvel movies have done this. It's going to jump around in time. Yeah. The implication that it's several years that he's probably been operating in the Marvel universe longer than we think because of the reference back in Winter Soldier that Hydra was going to take out Stephen Strange. We right, just haven't right, seen it yet. Right. Those, you were, know, those with quick eyes knew that. No, they said it. He, um, did, they, did they highlight that? Because they showed Jasper, the map. Jasper, there were a lot Jasper of Sitwell said his name aloud. Oh, okay. And, um, there were a so lot of names on that map. 
That, well, there were names on that map, but he but he yeah. said it like we you know we've okay. targeted this this, and uh, so you know it, it's the early days of the you know like all the movies the first four I think take place almost simultaneously, yeah, and so they're jumping back around and then there were the little short films on the DVDs that sort of explained where they fit in and they're not necessarily in a chronological order and that this is going back to the idea is great and the, the visuals look so just oh. It's like Inception, but with a story behind it. <laughs> um, let's hope. Um, but again, you know, it's opening the door to a whole new thing visually and a whole new realm of the Marvel Universe, which is why we read comics in the first place. Uh, anything is possible. And you can have this unified, uh, you know, this, this cinematic universe where really all bets are off. Anything can happen. And that's what Doctor Strange is opening up for me when I look at that visually. And then when you look at television, so you can speak better to it. I saw, you know, I saw the Netflix trailer for oh, the teaser, really, because that's what it is, for yeah. Iron Fist. Um, and I will tell you why. You know, I'm just going to say I was a little bit underwhelmed, mainly because I want to see... I, this is what bothered me about Daredevil in the first season, too, yeah. is I, I, I'm not... I understand why you're pacing it this way, but the whole thing is, I want to see Danny Rand in that costume. Oh yeah, that that David Walker has, uh, you know, in the power, the current Power Man and Iron Fist book, even given Danny Rand a costume that looks like his costume, but looks like street clothes. It, well, it looks like it looks like the uh, jumpsuit that Bruce Lee wore in J- Game of Death. Right, it's yeah. a tracksuit. Yeah, and that's fine. And it's but it's in it's in. It's in Iron Fist colors. Yes. You know, and he could do that. And that's all I'm saying is, why doesn't the trailer do that? Show us why people give a crap about Iron Fist as a visual I'm giving giving the trailer a pass on that, because that's got to be like day one footage. They've got one special effects scene, and it's not very good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is, you know, Daredevil did set a high bar, and and I don't think they could have predicted this when they announced all these characters, and that they were going to tie together to the Defenders, is that Daredevil's fight scenes... Every single one I've seen. I'm still haven't finished season two, but they are, they are amazing live, you know, done in one shots. The, the fight scenes are astounding. The choreography is amazing, and then you get, and then you're going to bring an Iron Fist. You know, <laughs> it's like this is the downside of having a bunch of connected street fighters because the street fights have to, you just have to keep raising the stakes on them. So, yeah. and uh, you saw the Luke Cage trailer, which I have not yet watched. Yeah. The, uh, have you watched? Yeah, and you haven't watched the Defender one either. So I no. wanted, I wanted to talk to the Defender one first because that one's that one's just more about the names and it's they do an interesting thing about com- you, composing the word Defenders from the logos of the other shows. Oh, interesting. Torn out of torn out of this. It's almost like you were in some mad person's uh, apartment where they pasted all the stuff all over the walls, like artifacts and drawings and photos and stuff. And the camera's panning across it, and things are getting torn off and revealed. And one of the things that they do is one, they pull a um, a piece of paper off, and there's a while you're out note there that mm-hmm. that some people have identified as being from um, oh, it's uh, Hogarth's office, Jerry Hogarth, uh, the 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 lawyer, and on oh. it on it it says, "Who is Danny Rand?" So there's okay. like some kind of mystery about who Danny is. And, and of course we get that from the trailer as well, because he's kind of walking the streets 
Yeah. After he's apparently come back from Brigadoon. Um, uh, not Brigadoon. Oh, Kung Lum. You have just made Iron Fist, like <laughs> Iron Stomach and I'd, Iron Throat. I want a musical version of the Kung That man Kung can dr- hold his liquor. That's what his superpower is. So, you cannot get him drunk. <laughs> so the other, the other thing from that is we're going to get, I'm sure we're going to get a, uh, he's still got his, uh, his iPod from when he was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to get another mixtape, I'm sure. So Maybe. Can but, you call uh, it a mixtape if it's an iPod? Sure. Do they still call it mixtapes? They still call them mix, uh, you know, playlists. You know, playlists. That's what it is. We call it playlists yeah. now. So I, I wanted to be down with the kids. Well, I mean, if you were a real hipster, you'd have a playlist on a cassette, cassette you know. Uh, I'm not a real hipster. You saw me with a beard. I shaved that as soon as yeah, I could. It, yeah, it, and we all breathe a sigh of relief. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, so the so it's it's the defenders thing is just kind of moody and setting setting the pace for it. Luke Cage delivers. Luke Cage is like, we know that dude is bulletproof. We know that dude just walks down the hallways and pushes the bad guys out, and then we know that there's something bigger than he is that he's going to have to deal with it's it was a it's a it's a good a good solid luke cage uh i like the music i like the logo um yeah, yeah everything everything clicked for that as far as being a long-term i still remember picking up uh iron uh power man uh, it was called luke cage wasn't it the first issue luke cage hero for hire hero for, no 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 the first one when uh oh was hero for hire yeah um yeah, he wasn't Power Man for a while. The the he one where a... he actually breaks out of the prison and stuff, and they and mm-hmm. he's still dealing with the fact that he's not uh, legally supposed to be out. Yeah, um, that I, that's still vivid. I was in I was a junior in high school when that thing came out, and that was like yeah, uh, because it was an action thing that wasn't everything else was kung fu, and Luke Cage was just like. A puncher, Badass. a brawler. Yeah, yeah. I want to say something else that we didn't get a trailer for it, but I do. Uh, Sony sent me footage of the panel uh, from Spider-Man: Homecoming, and one of the things I commented on the site was the that if you had any doubts because you were just you know you're just talking about about Luke's connection with everything, and we've got these ideas and something bigger. And if you had any doubts about Marvel Studios being firmly in control of Spider-Man, even though it's Sony. They are wiped away by that panel, by the very little footage that he, even I have on the site that they gave, is that Kevin Feige does the introductions. Kevin Feige is in control and says, you know, Amy Pascal, who had produced all the other movies for Sony, decided that she was going to do what was best for the character. Good move. And that was to give it back to Marvel. You know, so, um, and, you know, I, I think the more expensive these movies get, which they do, you know, is split the risk. Absolutely. But, um, it definitely confirmed for me that Kevin's, um, presence there was, this is ours. You know, it just happens to have Sony ahead of it. Uh, you know, and, and they did confirm Michael Keaton will be the vulture. So that's really cool. Coming on the wings of Birdman. Birdman. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, um, it's that, also kind of, it's also kind of weird given, um, there was a, given all the stuff we've gotten in the Avengers with uh, with uh, Falcon, so it's mm. like his uh, because the the Vulture has basically he's he's only a suit, right? He's and he well, has it's basically claws. The, you're right. It's basically the Falcon, but I mean that that's another tie-in. You've got I, you know that Tony Stark's going to be involved, yeah, 
in Homecoming. And the other thing is, to me, that was the funniest part about Winter Soldier and the Falcon, was that the explanation for him being the Falcon is that the army had been using that technology. Yeah. So it's just casually, oh yeah, we developed flying suits <laughs> you know, like five years ago back in Afghanistan. <laughs> and you're just kind of like, what? Wait a minute, we sort of glossed over that moment, but Winter Soldier was so good, nobody questioned it. But you know, it really is, which means it's got to be out there. You know, others have to be using it. So yeah. it's it, it makes sense. Um, you know, the other thing that came out of the Marvel panel, which I thought was interesting that came out of the Marvel panel, but makes sense that it did, was that uh, they have confirmed the long-standing rumor that uh, sometime in early 2017, you will no longer be able to ride at Disney California Adventure the Tower of Terror, because it will not be the Tower of Terror anymore. It will be... Uh, what are they calling it? Oh, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Breakout. Uh, it's becoming a new ride. And I had my doubts because I thought it was kind of a weird overlay. It sounded like that from the rumors that that's what it was going to be. But James Gunn posted on Saturday night uh, on Facebook uh, a big long thing about the panel and, and then said, you know, I had my doubts. I love Tower of Terror, but then they, they worked with me and they've created something very new. Um, that the that the uh, collector will have captured all the Gardens of the Galaxy, and you're going to help Rocket, and it's still going to end with a drop. But the at least the concept art looks wild and different, and it's not just a, like putting up new banners or anything. It's like they may be doing a pretty big retrofit on this thing. That's good. So yeah, because the one thing I you know all I'm asking. If you're going to take, because Tower of Terror, it's not even that the ride is that cool to me, it's that the presentation is so beautiful. Yeah. It tells the story so well. And, you know, it still exists in uh, in Orlando. Although, you know, the re- the reality is it, 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 that if it works in, Cal- in California Venture, they might take it out in Orlando too. Because even though Universal has the rights to the Marvel characters in Islands of Adventure, I have heard that that doesn't extend to Guardians of the Galaxy because they weren't in play. Ah, good. When that was licensed. So, because when Guardians of the Galaxy, the first movie came out, that was the first um, Marvel movie that they were allowed to do, like that little um, preview, like the first 10 minutes that they do in, in the uh, in Tomorrowland in, Ca- in Disneyland that they could do over in Disney World because it didn't... Um, you know, it, it, because Universal had not cared about the Guardians of the Galaxy when they got Spider-Man and Hulk and uh, you know and the Avengers. Yeah. So um, it's it kind of looks... interesting, though, if you think about. I mean, I've ridden both the Orlando ride and the Anaheim ride. The Orlando ride has a lot more dark ride part to it. That's what I've heard. And I've so heard the Orlando is better. It, it'd be much more of an. I think it's probably a much more extensive rework than if they're going to do that. They'll have to create a lot more stuff for it. Um, yeah, my favorite so part. My favorite part of the Anaheim one, though, is seeing that building from outside the park. Yes, and the, the kind of blasted because you know I was born in L.A. and you you spent your your uh, your adult youth uh, in uh, in L.A. My formative, my formative college years. Yes. yes, and that building is so much old Los Angeles. And and to see one side of it looks perfectly natural in L.A., and then you turn and you see the blasted side of it. I I just love that effect. Well, in the real world, that that building was taken over by Scientologists, (laughs) which is 
you know, I don't know which. But, you know, I like that exactly what you said, you know, because the thing that kids today lose in, in how much, you know, Disneyland took over kind of Anaheim politics and the streets around and, you know, is that when I was a kid and you drive down five to go to Disneyland. Oh, yeah. And you could see the Matterhorn and Space Mountain in the distance. And it would get you all hyped up. And, you know, you can't do that anymore. You can't see those from the street and uh, from the highway. And you can't, or from the freeway, rather. Uh, it's the highway. I sounded like I was still going down. And when we'd go down Route 66 and we got our kids, <laughs> um, it was, you know, it, it's that. And, it, and the Tower of Terror, the other thing is, that like when you see cars land from the back, they didn't cover up the you know they didn't keep the illusion right. But the Tower of Terror is the illusion from all angles. Yeah, and that's what makes it so great. So I'm sorry to see it go, but uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, take my son next week, and I'm gonna try to convince him let's go one last time because it will be the last time you can ride Tower of Terror. Does he like yeah. Tower of Terror? Is it no, he, he, he's freaked out by Rod Serling. Oh, really? Stop the then, drop. It's Rod. It's Rod. But since then, we have watched Twilight Zone episodes. Okay. So I think he may, you know, and, and I don't want to make it sound, you know, that was when he was eight. Rod Serling freaked him out. And I am, I am the first to admit, you know, you have a formative freak out on a ride. It's a long time before you get yourself to the point of like, I'll give it another shot, yeah. you know? So uh, I totally understand. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> mocking my son for that because I hated it's a small world from a freak out when I was four until I was about 23. And now I hate it for different reasons, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> mostly from reading kingdom keepers where all the figures come to life and try to kill the kids. Have you ever gotten uh, stuck on that ride? Yes, I have too. It was, I was stuck on it with, uh, Oh no, you don't have, uh, I was stuck on it with a, with another couple, and we were like, after about fifteen minutes, we were like, we're going to go insane. This is we're going to go crazy. And did you ever see the Saturday Night Live sketch where that happened? No. And and somebody steps out, out of the boat and goes, "This is ridiculous. I'm going to go." And it was probably from one of the bad years, but it was a great idea for a sketch. And the guy steps onto the out of the boat into the water, and like there's a he, there's a third rail which there isn't in the in the right. real ride but right. he gets electrocuted <laughs> and the song changes to one down six to go <laughs> <laughs> anyway i don't i don't even remember who the coast was what the castle but that sketch will always stick in my mind but anyway that's that's what's going down i do want to talk about we, we we're gonna have to make some I, I don't know if it's a we have to make convention choices but it is interesting that uh, they announced the dates of Comic Con oh, yeah. uh, next year, and D twenty three announced their dates, and I'm, they're only a week apart. Yeah, I've already got my tickets for D twenty three. Well, it, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting because I will guarantee you that at Comic Con there will be no Marvel. There might be Marvel Comics presence. There might be Marvel Television. Maybe there will not be any Marvel movies presence. Yeah, because probably. they will make all their announcements at D twenty three. Probably not, yeah. And so and frankly, I, mean, that's, I would rather wait in a line at D twenty three for that than at Comic Con. Well, because it's a bigger panel. You know, it's a bigger space. It's I a bigger think. space and they manage the line much better. All that pre line stuff works great and they clear the hall. Well, yeah, and I'd say something else that was interesting was this is a year I to give a little feedback on Comic Con was the lines were not as ridiculous. Really? 
And that has been the comment. And and one of the things I'll say positively is it was the RF ID. Really? Because what happened was uh, that you couldn't pass it out to someone else. Ah. So, like, you you know, the way it had been before is just, you know, show your badge. Like, if I went in, I couldn't hand, and not that I'd ever done this anyway, but, you know, you couldn't hand it to someone else who would then go walk back out and hand it to someone else. Right. And come in. So, really, everything was, there were still ridiculous lines for, uh, you know, for exclusives and so forth. But on Thursday, it was funny, like, the Barkers, there were Barkers outside of Hall H saying, no waiting, come on in. Well, that's what I ran into last last time. Yeah. Last year I ran into that. And, and, you know, if you got caught while the line was going in, but it really just didn't have the ridiculousness of it. And uh, so you scanned, it worked better than Silicon Valley Comic Con, which I admitted we said Silicon Valley Comic Con was using a new technology. So it was a badge. Um, Literally at Four, probably sometime between 4.30 and 5 o'clock on Sunday, my badge fell off. Oh. I have no idea where it was, where it is. Um, but at 5 o'clock is when I noticed it. And that's, it was 5 o'clock Sunday, meaning there was no point. I didn't need it anymore. Right, right. But <laughs> It just got tired. It couldn't hold on any longer. They were heavy. Oh, no, they were I, actually really heavy. And I, ha- so, I have it. I still have my badge. I yeah. just didn't use it. Yeah. Um, so, and, and good call, by the way, uh, you know, so we didn't really talk about it was that we could not, uh, didn't get a hotel room for Rick. Rick said he would uh, sleep on the floor of my hotel room, but good call, Rick. There really was no floor space in my hotel room, (laughs) especially once Jason Salazar and I both had bought toys. Um, (laughs) because I, I think like, I think the invisible plane box is like six by six feet. Uh, No, no, it's just ridiculously oversized for what must be a Hot Wheels sized toy. Uh, yeah. It is like it, it is like a foot, uh, a foot by foot. You know, well, it's ridiculous. The Hot Wheels toys typically have an exterior package and then an interior interior package, and then, yes, and then a display case inside that. I haven't opened it up yet. I should do that. But anyway, um, I'm just thinking. You know, it's, what's the resale value now? But anyway, uh, so it was less. It was a lot more pleasant. And the other thing is too is that a lot of the activities outdoors did not require badges, uh-huh. so people could get their taste. Like Comic Con HQ's st- stage was facing the Hilton Bayfront, and anybody could walk up and watch the panels there. Anybody, so you got your taste of Comic Con. I had dinner with some college friends. Uh, Sunday night, and they just, you know, were kind of like people watching and said, you know, this is the way that the locals wanted to experience it, was to not go into the crowd, huh. but to watch people leaving. And, you know, it was, it was that that was nice. Um, I also do want to report that the fan team uh, won uh, the Pro Fan Trivia match, and I'm proud to say that the two last winning answers were Aquaman-based. So, uh, uh, Who answered them? Uh, I answered the first one, Peter Spenson from Bleeding Cool, really beat me by a split second. And uh, and the <laughs> and it was where I got the Deathless, uh, first time actually getting to, to meet Paul Levitz, uh, <laughs> said, you know, I've heard there's these things called lives. You should look into getting them. 
<laughs> because the question was uh, that, that I answered was uh, Aquaman had a habit of naming his best sea creature friends. What was the name of his octopus? And I went, Topo, you know, don't mess with me on an Aquaman question. I've waited my whole life for him to make live action. I'm so <laughs> excited. And that's when Paul Levin's just like, you know, I think there are stores where you can buy them. And then, of course, uh, and the second question was which villain killed uh, Arthur Curry Jr., and which is Black Manta, uh, both of which were things established in continuity by Paul Levitz. So we beat Paul Levitz on a Paul Levitz, so nice. he got bitter. Very, always a win. <laughs> Not bitter, it's just, you know, it, it, I, I forget that there's a trash-talking element to it. Yeah. Uh, and I'm like, okay, just a second. But it was uh, an honor to play with Paul Levitz, uh, you know, so, who basically did write, since he was the lead superheroes writer for so long, some of my best, you know, the comics that are most formative for me. So... We uh, we're triumphant. So let's go into some of the interviews. We're splitting this up because I got so much comics access this year. Uh, it was it's a wealth of stuff. So uh, we've we've talked to and caught up on news, but we want to catch up on some interviews, and then we'll record. Uh, we'll we'll edit some more in later throughout probably throughout the summer. But I think these are probably the best here. So uh, not the best, but but rather the things that I wanted to get to up front. So first up. Uh, I got a chance, thanks to IDW, to talk to Arvin David, who is the current writer of Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, uh, and uh, and also the executive producer on the upcoming uh, BBC America uh, show, and basically keeper of all things Dirk Gently. So uh, we had a conversation at the IDW booth. Great conversation. Great guy to meet. We are at the IDW booth, well, actually, and top shelf, uh, in front of the actual sign for the Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency comic books, and with Arvin David, who is, what is your title in relation to this whole project? Because you've got the show, you've got the, the comics, I assume something with the novels, I don't know. Well, um, it's funny, because Max Landis, who is writing the show, and Robert Cooper, who is our showrunner, and I have our offices next to each other in Vancouver, and Max put signs on all our doors. And on Max's door, it says, The Mad King. On Robert's door, it says, uh, The Iron Hand. And on my door, it says, The Arvind. Because Max decided that my title was too unique that to it, reduce. It, it's up to you to define. That's fantastic. <laughs> so, uh, so I don't know. I am the Arvind of the Gently Solicited Detective Agency. I exec produce the TV show. I'm writing the comic books. And uh, in various ways, the interconnections come back to me on it, I guess. <laughs> well, how did you get involved uh, with the property in general? I will try the shortest possible version of that answer, because it, right. it is a challenge for me to condense it. I was 16. I read the novel. And it was my turn to direct the high school play. And not knowing any plays... I decided I would adapt Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency as my high school play. Nice. So I did that. It wasn't a bad idea at all. <laughs> um, and Douglas Adams came to see it. And wow. thus began a 20-year journey to repay that favor. And he came to see it, and he loved it, and he helped start my career and took me under his wing. And 20-something years later, I get to return the favor and make the television show. Now, on the BBC I did not. I did not. A lot. Of, I had friends who did, and um, and I think Stephen Mangan, who is a friend, did a great job as Dirk. Uh, but what we're trying to do really is to take Dirk to a bigger scale and to a bigger level. 
you know, what the books are is a wonderful mashup of detective and sci-fi and fantasy. I mean, in the second book, he goes to Valhalla and has an adventure with Thor. They are jet planes and eagles. Sometimes they're the same thing. The first book has time travel and multiple realities and the beginning of life on Earth. And we wanted to make a TV show that had that scale and that ambition of ideas. And that's really what we're doing now with BBC America. And it's what I think we're also doing in the comic books. Well, oh, we yes, have very much so. I, mean, I, I talked about the comics when, they, when the first issue came out uh, on a podcast we do, which will now be on. Uh, <laughs> unwittingly, but that's how it works, right? Um, and it's, it's the spirit of those two books... Mm-hmm. Uh, is so in those comics, and it, they're fun. Well, thank you. I mean, that's honestly that's the highest praise I could ask for because that's you can't adapt Douglas Adams. He was his own unique genius, and I think if you try and just do Douglas Adams, you can only fall short. But what I'm trying to do is to be true to the spirit and to the tone to try and chase his elusive tone, which is both incredibly intelligent, incredibly funny, uh, thoughtful and absurd all at the same time. And that's a really tough tone to chase, but that's what we're trying to do. And to take the other thing that he was amazing at, which was to take tons of ideas and compress them. So in this latest arc of the comic books, I'm taking uh, the, the cause and idea of conservation and of the rhinos who are terribly endangered by our own human stupidity, which is a cause very dear to Douglas's heart, and mash that up with ideas about human communication and interdimensional travel and Dirk's own approach to his past and to memory and what it is to be ourselves, and try and mash all those ideas together in one place, hopefully in a way that it doesn't become incomprehensible. Do you have resource materials besides the novels? Did, like, did Douglas leave behind notebooks, things that you're working off of, or is this out of your head? It's, it's, look, he did leave behind several hard drives, and, um, <laughs> and I do have access to those. The estate has been very kind. Also, there's some published stuff. He was working on a third Doug Jenny novel when he died, and the novel was variously called A Spoon Too Short or The Salmon of Doubt. So what I have taken are those titles. And this arc is called A Spoon Too Short. And the next arc that starts up in October will be The Salmon of Doubt. And again, I'm not literally trying to finish Douglas's unfinished fragments. I mean, frankly, I don't... I think that feels to me vaguely disrespectful. I think they were his. But I'm happy to take, and what I have done is take some touch points. So in his unfinished fragment of that novel there is a rhinoceros. The rhinoceros does offer the way of travel through the inner membranes of its nose. And that seemed to me an idea. (laughs) So my rhino is not that rhino. Sid, who is the rhino in our books, is my own rhino. His voice is his own and it's mine. But that his nose and the inner membranes of it offer some opportunities I have taken cheerfully from Douglas. There is an idea in the unfinished fragments that Dirk receives a phone call from himself and which tells him to come to America. And that idea, we are taking and doing something with. And exactly what we're doing remains to be revealed, but there are these moments of genius in Douglas that 
uh, jumping off points that are you know the shoulder of the giant that I'm happy to uh, to get a to get a leg up and from. And how has it been to work with IDW on the comics? They've been enormously supportive, and they're also our partner on the TV show. So we are completely um, locked together in this holistic world, and they've been just incredibly supportive. I think you know, listen, I'm a first-time comic writer. My background is in television and features and theater, and for them to trust me to do this, I mean, initially I, I edited the first run that Chris Ryle wrote, and that was, I think, for me, an enormous education on how comics are made. And at the end of that run, Chris said to me, well, why don't you take on the writing for the next run? And I was like, really? Because I would love to, but really? Because I've not done this before. And he went, yeah. He said, you may not be an expert in comic books, but you're learning, and you're an expert in Dirk Gently, so go. And so Chris and Denton Tipton, my editor, have both been hugely supportive. And Ted Adams, who's a huge fan, has been nothing but encouraging. Uh, And I have to say, my artists particularly Ilias Kyanis, who is a kind of mad Greek genius, has taken concepts that are entirely undrawable and made them drawable. <laughs> Does uh, that make you want to raise your game? Like, oh, my oh God. I'm going to make this even more Every month, every month. <laughs> he sent me, we were just talking this morning, and by the way, we've never met because he lives in Greece. So okay. we have this strange long-distance communication, which is, we've never even spoken on the phone. It's all... Facebook and email and, and IM and so on. So today, he sent me a drawing, uh, some sketches, with him pointing at things and then saying in his strong Greek accent, Dirk Gently, TV Dirk Gently, comic Dirk Gently, Sally, Reg, upside down, upside down. And I'm trying to go, yes, yes, do that. <laughs> and I said to him, this is the best Facebook video I've ever received including of the sexy variety. I was like, this is good. So, no, it does. It makes me... What I try and do every issue, and who knows if anyone's noticing, is do at least one big spread that takes a big abstract idea and makes it flesh. So we've had the jigsaw puzzle. We had a whole you know, big double-page spread where we tried to explain the complexity of rhino horn poaching, which is a very complex and interdependent yes. subject and hard for anyone to understand and it took me a while and I've been working with the Save the Rhino Foundation and I said right explain it to me and I, and I read a bunch of reports and I had the executive director of Save the Rhino explain it to me a bunch of times and I said okay let me see if I can explain it in a two page comic spread the supply and demand of rhino poaching and Ilias completely raised his game and did that as a jigsaw puzzle and then to top that a month later I'm like, okay, I think we'll do a double-page spread of sheet music. Because, and I had this idea that music is different and how we communicate, it's not my idea, music is different, how we communicate through it is different. And of course, you can't have music in a comic, because comics, sadly, are not multimedia. But I'm like, but you can. Yet. Not yet, but I'm like, you can for people who can read music. So I'm like, we're going to do a double-page spread that has actual musical notation. And if somebody actually wants to play it while they read it, it needs to work. Hard to have to go back and try. <laughs> usually I'm reading someplace away from my piano, but I'm going to... Uh, okay. So, What's the next level? So you've got a TV show going, yes. and you're working with Max Landis, and that's been... I, you know, I'm very much looking forward to it, but if you are holding the... Almost right now, the holder of the legacy... What is the next thing for Dirk Gently to move into? Douglas put it into video game, uh, computer games? I, look, I think games are 
games are definitely something we want to do. We're in a bunch of conversations. Uh, I think that will not happen this year. I think this year a television series and comic books will do, just for the moment. Um, I think next year uh, we'll look at games. Also rather lovely, the original play, the play that for me started it all, uh, has just been published. Samuel French have just brought it out. I did see uh, that. It's been sold here at Con, and I know they're planning a big push. Uh, the play gets performed, even though it hasn't been published till now, it gets performed quite a lot. Is it available here at the Con? It is, it is. Where would I go to get the I think, at the, I think Samuel French have a booth somewhere. Um, I will have to look we, that up. We will find it. Uh, I must find it. I'm supposed to be signing something. something. Um, and, but Just they, wander as Dirkwood and as everything's Dirk. fine. I will follow someone who looks like he knows where he's going and hopefully it will take me there. So the players come out. It's getting a big push to be performed uh, around the world and by amateur groups and schools and universities. And so I think we have stage, we have TV, we have comics. Next year we'll go interactive, but All this right. year that will do. Okay, take that. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Dan. Next, um, in what I hope will become, like my Teen Titans Go interviews, an annual tradition of talking to Christos Gage, uh, who is the current writer of the Buffy the Vampire Slayer comics, which just uh, they announced season 11 coming. He's working with Dan Slott on Amazing Spider-Man. And today, as of the day of this recording, uh, he, uh, he has a little book that uh, I think we paid a little bit of attention to. Uh, it was called Rom. So, Christos Gage... Here at the Dark Horse booth at Comic Con with uh, Christos Gage, who is continuing. How do you want to phrase that? It's Buffy season eleven. You yes. were a writer on Buffy season ten. It's yep. just ongoing. Um, back for that. So we'll start with that. That's why you, what you're writing for Dark Horse. Yes. So uh, now, how many years have you been on that book? I think I'm going to. Uh, I remember we had our first summit for season nine when I wrote Angel Faith in January of 2011. So it's like five years. Yeah, and uh, how, how are you keeping the characterizations fresh for yourself and going to those summits and, and finding new energy? Well, part of it is that Josh is at the summits, and he's very helpful with that. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, it just, I mean, the, what's always worked best about those characters is when they reflect life experiences that most of us go through, and you just add a supernatural twist to it, and that's what we're continuing to do now that they're entering adulthood. So. How do you determine the end of a season? Uh, we usually determine it at the summit or soon thereafter. Like generally, by at the summit, you know the spine of the of the season. Like this is what's going to happen, and then uh, I'll work out the details, like in specifics. Like this happens in issue one, two, three. Uh, um, but usually, you kind of have some idea of what the end is going to be. Uh, so that's that's important to know where you're going with it. But then also, sometimes you get ideas along the way and change and sometimes things are left open like when I was doing Angel and Faith in season 9 we talked about uh, you know Angel's whole quest was to resurrect Giles uh, who we had inadvertently accidentally killed and the question was A. should he succeed which we all, I, Joss and I always kind of felt he should but then how, how would Giles come back because it wouldn't work for him to come back the same way thank you uh, that would be too that, that's, it's not that easy in the Whedonverse so how should he come back? Should he come back as Ripper, which is something that I pitched, and Josh said that you know that was interesting, but it was also a little weird because then he'd be the same age as the main characters, and there'd be the prospect of romance between Giles and these daughter figures, you know, which is a little too weird. Uh, so we just settled on him coming back as like a 12, 13 year old kid, 
but uh, that was Joss's idea, and I think it's been a lot of fun. Um, and uh, you know, that that's just so we we try to have a structure to guide us, but at the same time leave opportunities for inspiration to strike along the way. So, in broad strokes, what can we expect out of season eleven? Uh, season eleven is it's shorter. It's going to be twelve issues. It's going to have the structure of like a show like American Horror Story or uh, the, one of the British model shows where there's a, an actual story being told beginning, middle, and end, and it's going to be bigger. It's going to be uh, a disaster happens at the beginning of the season, so instead of like, oh my God, we're, there's going to possibly be an apocalypse at the end, it's like, no, the, not the apocalypse, but something really bad already happened. It happened at, at right in issue one, and now we've got to deal with the fallout of that. Do you... Do you and Joss and whoever else is in on this summit have an end game in place? Or you mean Buffy, for the entire series? Yeah, or is Buffy just going to go on as long as people want Buffy to go on? I think it's going to go on as long as Joss wants it to go on and feels that there are stories still to be told, which I think he does. Okay. Then let's move to uh, a creator-owned project you did this last year. We talked about briefly last summer. You informed me of it, and I've learned so much about history as well. The Lion of Aurora. Yes. So what... Uh, Remind me, because I keep forgetting the name of even this religious order that I had never heard right. of before. It's a group called the Waldensians, which were sort of Protestants before Protestantism actually happened, uh, in a way, because at a time when the church was sort of tied in with the government and control, like, the, the Bible, Scripture could only be read in Latin, and most people couldn't read Latin if they could read at all. So there was some degree of the, the church had, had power over the common man as a result, because religion was such a central part of their lives. And the Waldensians said, well, no, people should be able to read the Bible in their own la- in their own language and should not need priests, because at the time there was a lot of corruption, like priests selling indulgences, which get you out of hell, you know, if you pay them now. <laughs> and, it, you know, the Waldensians felt like every man and woman should be allowed to have their own relationship with God. And it was just, the, the, what was dangerous about their ideas is that they said, we are all equal, essentially. A lot of the principles that our country was founded on, uh, you know, equality, uh, not there isn't like a monarchy and, you know, a higher order that is allowed to tell everybody what to do. So, um, of course, as a result, these people were persecuted and uh, they were persecuted mercilessly. And what this story is about is uh, a man named Joshua Janavel who rose from being a simple peasant farmer to one of the greatest military minds of all time. Uh, and uh, Napoleon called him one of the best military tacticians ever. Uh, he would win battles of like five men against 500, and it's it's a lot like Braveheart. So if you've ever enjoyed the movie Braveheart, you would probably like this story. And how did you stumble across this story? I mean, it was, it, was, I, it was it was not me at all. It was my wife Ruth, who's my writing partner. We wrote for the season one of Daredevil together. We've written for Law and Order SVU. We've been writing together for 20 years, and she it, she is Waldensian on her mother's side. So oh, really, yeah. So. so uh, the funny thing is she said she didn't understand the significance of it until she took a comparative religions class in college, and her professor was found out she was Waldensian. He said, oh, my God, are you Waldensian? She said, yeah. And he said, do you know what the significance of the Waldensians are? And she didn't, and she learned a lot more about it. I mean, she knew the basic story, but she learned a lot more about it, and she'd been fascinated with it since. And had been re- Literally, she researched this for, for you know, 15 years uh, before we, we did the graphic novel. Um, and because at the, at the time, and to some degree still today, a lot of the manuscripts that she had to read were only available in, like, university library collections. Some of them have been digitized since then and put online. But so she had to, 
she got a fellowship from UNC Chapel Hill and researched everything. And uh, she wants she's been wanting to tell this story for a really long time. So we're very glad that it finally saw the light of day. Are they still? Act, is it still an active uh, group of Christians as Waldensians? Yeah, as a matter of fact. Um, well, there's Waldensians in Italy. There's Waldensians. I think there's a group in South America. There's uh, in Valdez, North Carolina, where Ruth is from. There's uh, a big group, um, and they're they're basically part of. You know, in the U.S., I think they're part of the Protestant Church, and in Italy, they're part of another church. Uh, she's going to kill me because I've forgotten exactly how it breaks down. But um, I yeah, won't they, tell her when we have they, this podcast. Done. <laughs> they are still they are still active, and in fact, very recently, the Pope met with the head of the Waldensian Church in Italy and apologized for the Catholic Church's persecution of the Waldensians. He said it was wrong. Please forgive us. And uh, it was a, a wonderful thing because although there had been forms of reconciliation in the past, it was the first time a, a sitting pope had actually visited the Waldensian Church and, and formally apologized for, for that persecution. So uh, it's, you know, it, it, and the funny thing is it, that news hit not long before the graphic novel came out, so it was pretty cool. There you are. Uh, one thing about that, because you mentioned the comparison to, to Braveheart, and you and your wife have written for television, certainly, is anyone sn- sniffing around this, to me, very cinematic, interesting historical epic that nobody knew, knew about? <laughs> well, um, I don't know what I can say. I mean, Oni Press is the publisher, right. and they have been in touch with Ruth and my agent uh, okay. agents, and I know we're sort of leaving it to them. You know, I mean, we're... We're letting them field uh, the interest. We actually, Ruth and I, wrote it as a screenplay before we wrote it as a graphic novel. Uh, so we have a screenplay completed already. Um, okay. So, you know, we'll see, uh, uh, you know, what the interest is, I guess. But it, it's funny because we're kind of like, we're working on other stuff now. You let us know when when, and if people are interested and if there are legitimate offers out there. And we'll, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Kind of interesting to say. It's almost like a reverse engineering then. If you had the screenplay and then put it in a graphic novel format, what was that process like? Well, part of it is that when we wrote the screenplay, uh, which was, you know, quite some years ago, we sort of asked our agents uh, at the time, what do you think? And they said, you know, period movies are a tough sell because they're so expensive to make. And they're not necessarily like a big blockbuster hit. It's not Harry Potter. It's not Iron Man. You know, um, you, hope, you hope that it's become something successful like Braveheart, but you never know. So it's it's a risk unless you have a, like a big star attached. Uh, so we were like, well, okay, that's fine. So let's explore other ways to do it. And we did it as the graphic novel. And inadvertently over the years that it, it took to make that happen... Uh, graphic novels and comics have now become a, a rich source of movie right. and television material. So it actually is to hopefully to, to our advantage in terms of exploring other media that it exists in graphic novel form. And there people are out there interested in it. It was selected as you know one of the top graphic novels of the month of August by uh, uh, last year by by Amazon. Uh, you okay. know it, it's um, it won the Comics Alliance Best Historical Graphic Novel of 2015, and you know it's been very really well received. So. You know, we'll see. I mean, we didn't... Our, our end goal was not to, hey, let's write a graphic novel to make a movie. It was like, we want to tell the story. We want to tell the story, get it out there so that people, you know, schools have responded, libraries love it, uh, and, you know, we wanted to, to reach an audience yeah. so people find out about, about this amazing chapter in history that almost no one knows about. Yeah, it is a terrific book. And you've also gotten to play with Dan Slott on Spider-Man this year. Yes, that was fun. You, know, you, you were in a cover too, weren't you? Didn't you get to be painted in? A, no, a, I don't think so. <laughs> okay, Dan's been on a cover. I, I have yet to be on a cover. Okay. Nor do I have much desire to be on a cover. <laughs> How? What, 
what's that collaboration like? It's a lot of fun. Dan and I have been working together for years, ever since Avengers the Initiative. Uh, so we've been working together for, you know, I don't know, over five years. Uh, and it's a very natural collaboration. And I feel like we have similar sensibilities. And, you know, he he plots and I script. And it seems to work out very well. Uh, and then sometimes I write Spider-Man stuff on my own, like the Civil War II Spider-Man miniseries that, that's coming out now. Um, but I always like collaborating with Dan because it's it's... You know, he comes up with these great, amazing, high-concept ideas, and then I get to come up with witty, you know, Spider-Man quips for it, and uh, it's just it's just great fun. I mean, I mean I'm, you I'm have always the, up you have the fun job. Then. Yeah, I do have the fun. <laughs> See, that's how I feel. Dan's like, oh, scripting is so hard, and I say, no, plotting is harder for me. So we're like, we're like Jack Spratt and his wife. Between us, we get it done. So. <laughs> All right. Well, good luck in the next year, and Thank hopefully you. we have another conversation next summer, and great. even more fantastic projects for me. Thank you. Thank you. Next was perfect timing in that I was supposed to interview this artist on Thursday, but it kept getting delayed, and it was delayed until Saturday morning. So we got the first, which I have transcribed as of this recording, already on Fanboy Planet, but if you want to hear him speak, we got the first interview with uh, Dan Mora. Uh, from Boom Studios, the artist of Klaus. We got the first interview after he won the Russ Manning Most Promising Newcomer Award. So, uh, great talent, humble guy, great conversation. Here at Comic-Con with Dan Mora, who is uh, the newly anointed... uh, you won an award last night. Uh, it's Ru- the Russ Manning o- Award for Most Promising Newcomer. Is that how it was? Yes, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that was the award. Kind of dazzling. I, mean, I feel <laughs> Yes, it, it was so so amazing. It was so good. Uh, yeah. um, so, uh, uh, say, he is the artist on Boom Studios' Klaus, uh, with Grant Morrison writing. So, um, I guess the first thing is, how did you get involved in this project? I, I I am not sure. I, I don't know. I I used to work in a newspaper, so I every day and before work I, I got home and and started to I don't know to to draw anything related with comics, and I did a Wonder Woman in a motorcycle, and one of the one of the editors in Boom Studios saw my Wonder Woman. And they thought that I'm, I could draw draw comics, so so <laughs> they wrote, wrote me an, an email, and that that's why. So so really, they they sought you out. Yes, yes, they saw my Wonder Woman, so that that's that was why. Now, was that um, to be working just for Boom in general, waiting for an assignment, or did they say you were the right artist for Klaus right off the bat? No, um, they they hired me, but. They didn't know what what to what comic give me, so f- they first give me Hexed, and, and after that they trust me a lot, and I don't know why, <laughs> and they give me Cloud with Grant Morrison. Okay. <laughs> so I know why. <laughs> okay, <laughs> because you've done a fantastic job on this book. <laughs> um, Thank you. So, um, but I I was really new. I mm-hmm. they, they didn't know if I was going to. To be, I don't know if if I was going to um, do a, a good job. But I was really, really new. So they trust me, and I am really grateful with them for that. What kind of 
research and influences go into creating this medieval uh, year one of Santa Claus the superhero? Okay, I'm. I I'm, I search for uh, the, uh, Joe the Barbarian from uh, Grant Morrison and Sean uh, Gordon Murphy. That was one of the first things I searched. And I, mm, I don't know. Bruce Team has been always like an inspiration, so I think Bruce Team. I can see that influence, yeah. Uh, okay. I see Bruce Team is like the big deal for me. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Almost every style and all, all the artists that, that I like, I think that I have took some something of, from all of them and, and put it together to, to all of these. Yeah, the question, every time I read an issue, I'm going to say, I mean, it is veered differently, but it reminds me of the children's special Santa Claus is coming to town, but like in a very dark way. So did, did you grow up with that? No, no, no. In, in Costa Rica, uh, and Santa Claus is, is not... That like a big deal is like I don't know. So for me, it was very weird to 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 do Santa Claus because I don't know. It was, it's something very different from Costa Rica. Well, so it's kind of interesting to come in cold, almost cold on that. That's okay. So what are what what, what are the Christmas traditions you grew up with? That you no, um, 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 uh, baby Jesus. Uh, oh, <laughs> oh sure, <laughs> going to make it about him. <laughs> 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 it, I don't know. It, it, it's uh, Santa Claus. It's, it's part of, of all the things, but it's not like here. Uh, uh, um, kids, they they really like Santa Claus here. Not so, but not so big, not, not a major part in Costa Rica. Yes, right? yes. But so, what is it like? What's the process working with Grant Morrison? It. I was so afraid at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> it was like I can't believe I'm going to work with Grant Morrison, and I, I didn't know what to expect. But he, he was. Uh, he is such a cool guy. And uh, in, he he trusted me in and uh, in, in all the in all the book and, and and I'm I'm really grateful for that and I don't know it was it was really fun it was it, it wasn't that easy yeah, that difficult <laughs> <laughs> at what point in the process did. Did you and Grant meet face to face? No, have you met face to face? No, yet? I haven't. I haven't so later him. today? Yes, today is going to be the first day that I see Grant Morrison face to face. Do you talk on the phone or is it all no, by no. email? No, no, no. Just uh, he 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 usually writes me some stuff in the at the beginning of the scripts. Mm-hmm. Hey, hey, Dan. Uh, I don't know. Uh, this is what's going to be. Uh, I like what you did. Uh, so, so something he, he usually s- writes something for me. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really grateful for that. And uh, so now that you got the Russ Manning Award, what was that moment like? When uh, you heard your name. I I don't know the words. <laughs> it, uh, it was so amazing, man. I, I was I wasn't prepared for that. I, 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 when they say my name, it was like, it was like, I, 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 I they write, they, they say the right name, it's my name, yes. 
and 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 all that people and, and I almost cried, man. That was so, what's so important for me. It is, you know, it is a great honor. You are absolutely deserving of it. What is next for you? Because Klaus is wrapping up. I don't know. I, I really don't know. <laughs> and my editor, I know he he has some stuff, but he he hasn't uh, shared it to to me. So I I don't I don't know what what's next. I really don't know. <laughs> I hope that. And I think maybe tonight yeah, we are going to have a dinner and he's going to, to tell me all the details. I don't know what's going next. Is there a character that you'd want to work on out of world comics, any place? I, I would love to draw Batman sometime. And I don't know. And Wolverine or Deadpool. I love Deadpool. Also. Who doesn't? <laughs> or Spider-Man. Or, I don't know. <laughs> so that's... Well, all right. Thank you. You've got a great future ahead. We're looking forward to the next thing you do. So, thank you very much for taking time. No, th thanks to you. Thanks to you, man. And then an interview with uh, a gentleman who has been on the podcast before, David Walker, who is the co-writer of a book that I think pretty much brings all of Rick Brett Schneider's greatest comics passions together into one book, which is Dark Horse's Tarzan on the Planet of the Apes. Like, I think it's actually co-published with Boom Studios as well, because I think they still have the Planet of the Apes license. But comes, uh, comes pretty damn close. Yeah. I, I don't, what what could we add into Tarzan on the Planet of the Apes that would make it the perfect Rick Brett Schneider book? Uh, Doc Savage. And, okay. And well, uh, maybe I mean, uh, Shang-Chi. If we, if we, if we, okay, if we got Marvel involved. But if we said that um, by proxy of Philip Jose Farmer, Doc Savage might be lurking in the background okay. somewhere because it's Tarzan, yeah, you yeah. know, they, they're together. I'd like you to imagine that and then pass out with excitement. <laughs> uh, and we talk a little bit about Nighthawk and Power Man and Iron Fist. And so, uh, David Walker. We are at uh, Comic-Con with David Walker, who you were on the podcast four or five months ago, I think, uh, before Luke Cage and uh, before Luke Cage, before Power Man and Iron Fist number one had come out, or Nighthawk had come out, and you were wrapping up Cyborg, uh, and you are here at Dark Horse because you've got Tarzan on the Planet of the Apes, one of those brilliant low. <laughs> How did this crossover never happen before? Uh, ideas, but the question is. How did you get involved with Tarzan on the Planet of the Apes? Uh, it's it's really kind of simple. Um, Tim Seeley was already involved in writing it, and Scott Alley, who's the editor at Dark Horse, um, knows me personally and knows that I'm a psychotic Planet of the Apes fan, like like huge to the point I have a tattoo of Doctor Zayas on my arm, and um, and yeah, you can't see it, but it's okay. it's there, and uh, I'll, I might show it to you later. Um, <laughs> It doesn't. It's it's old, so it doesn't look a lot like Doctor Zayas now. It looks more like an orange lump. Um, <laughs> but uh, so so Scott approached me and you know said if I, asked if I'd be interested, and you know it was like wow, Planet of the Apes. You know, especially somewhat within that original film canon esque. Obviously, it's a crossover, but you know I thought I might never get another opportunity to do this. And, and even though I was somewhat leery of, of these sort of crossovers, because sometimes they just come across as either sometimes a well-intentioned gimmick or sometimes, like, just a poorly planned out gimmick. And uh, thankfully, Tim Seeley and myself, we, we tried to do more than that. 
and and Scott pushed us to do more than that. And 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 then there's you know Fox and there was the Burroughs estate and, and everybody was interested in us doing something that would that would work well and, and I think we found that I think I hope I don't know. How big a Tarzan fan were you before? Um, huge Tarzan fan growing up as a kid. You know, I mean, I grew up in the era when there was only three or four channels and no VCR. So I've seen all of the Johnny Weiser Muller movies, Elmo Scott, Jock Mahoney. Uh, the Ron Ely TV series. I, I am pretty well versed, at least in the cinematic Tarzan world. I read some of the Burroughs books. Um, I had both the the comics that Joe Kubert drew for DC. Um, John Buscema drew uh, one over Marvel. Yeah, that's um, cool. yeah, and there was also like an animated Tarzan series in the seventies. So, Filmation. yeah, Filmation did it exactly. Um, and so, you can go ahead and cite all nerd references. Yeah, if you want, man. this is the right place. <laughs> so yeah, so so to say that I was also, um, you know, I would I wouldn't call myself a ride or die Tarzan fan, it, but it was like like I'm well versed in that world and. Um, and, and so, yeah, so it just, it, it all kind of came together as it were. And, and, and Tim is also well-versed in the Burroughs world. So I was, I would like lean on him for the Tarzan stuff more. He would lean on me more for the Planet of the Apes stuff, you know, and we would, you know, we just sort of bounce ideas around with each other a lot. So what was it about Planet of the Apes that captured your imagination? You know, a lot of it probably had to just do with, with my age and the era that I grew up in. So I grew up at a time, you know, before Star Wars, Planet of the Apes was it. It was um, it was one of the first franchises to really become a big, huge franchise. It was always on TV, um, and I so I remember watching these movies like first run on network television, and and the first time seeing Planet of the Apes, I'm like five years old or so, and the, the ending, and it just captivated me, and. And, you know, again, people forget that, like, there were action figures, there was board games, there was all this stuff. So, like, I had all that stuff as a kid. That I was, like, just absolutely fascinated with it. And, and it was, um, there was something about those movies that, that appealed to me. You know, obviously it was, like, part of it was just the makeup and that sort of stuff, the, the adventure aspect of it, the action aspect of it. But why they still resonate now is because... You know, I mean, the original one was co-written by Rod Serling, so it's like it, it wears its um, its agenda on its sleeve so well that a five-year-old kind of gets a lot of it, you know. Yeah. Um, and and that was sort of what it is. I mean, I, I was weaned on, you know, Planet of the Apes and watching reruns of Tar, uh, not Tarzan, excuse me, The Twilight Zone. So I'm a huge Serling fan reruns of Star Trek in in syndication. So I was I was kind of weaned on on that era where sci-fi fantasy stuff had some semblance of a message to it. And um and Planet of the Apes just happened to be maybe it was just timing more than anything else. It was the thing that that I saw when I was 5 years old. And 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 so while there's a lot of kids that remember Star Wars and Star Wars was so formative to them, to me it was Planet of the Apes and I had all the black and white magazines that Marvel published through Curtis. Oh, I had Adventures on the Planet of the Apes, which was the color version of the Curtis stuff. I had the Power Book and Records. You name it. If there was a Planet of the Apes the thing... Power Book and Records. Yeah, I had it all. <laughs> what do you think of the TV series? Uh, the TV series, the live-action TV series was, was okay. The animated TV series was 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 pretty craptacular. It, it, it was... <laughs> even as a kid, it was like... 
Wow. Um, that wasn't... I don't even think that was Filmation. I think that was... Um, oh, Ruby Spears, I think, did that one. It was... The animation was really... Not even third-rate sort of stuff. And, and I've, I've gone back and watched it as an adult. And it's like... Never has 22 minutes felt so long. Those episodes <laughs> are like 22 minutes. I feel like they're about four hours each. But yeah, so I've seen them all, you know. I own most of them. Um, but that TV, the, the television series from 74, I think it was. Yeah. There's some, there were some, actually some episodes that were really, I think, pretty solid, especially for TV. It was a, it was a bit formulaic. It was a lot like The Fugitive, but um, it still worked. So, what is the premise that gets Tarzan on the planet? Well, we, we started with the very basic premise uh, that kicks off Escape from the Planet of the Apes, which is Cornelius and Zira travel back in time to 1973. But we took the premise that instead of traveling back to 1973, they actually travel back to the late 1800s. Ah. And instead of crashing in off the coast of Los Angeles, they crash... Uh, Western Africa, um, and so that places them near uh, where the Mangani apes are, which are the apes from the Tarzan series. And so Cornelius and Zira, these apes from the future, actually become leaders of these intelligent apes from the Burroughs world. They adopt this baby human who's orphaned that they find in the jungle, they raise him as their son. And so we, we, we found a I think a pretty good seamless way to marry these two and then um, and so Cornelius and Zira have a son and so they have a their their adopted human son and then they have their chimpanzee son and and this series is is primarily about um, the brotherhood between these two characters the human who is more animal like and then the the chimpanzee who's more human like and and we get into the concepts of, of the family bond the ideologies between the two of them and and what's also interesting is that one of the big deviations is that the character of Caesar is raised by his parents in this series so we yeah. you know we, we never saw him in you know his parents were killed at the end of Escape from Planet of the Apes he is you know raised by a human in conquest so he's, he's always wondering about his future um, and in this series his parents are teaching him about the future. They're there guiding him. And so it's a very interesting... And that's anything beyond that, I feel like, is going to be going so deep into the spoiler realm that uh, people yeah, get I upset. Go there. I, yeah, I want to yeah. read the book. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But I want to get people excited. So that's, yeah. that's great. And like I said, this has been a heck of a year for you. Yeah. It's like it's exploded, <laughs> you know? I mean, really I know. It, it's, I, I, it, trust me. I think about this every day. It's, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> there's a they're selling a, a limited edition of that. Like I, this is like what's the rule about porn on the internet? Like if there's something you can imagine, yeah. it's like in cosplay. If there's anything you can imagine, yeah. somebody's got cosplayed it the next day. So yeah. for those who didn't see uh, the audio podcast, the visual uh, was the was a that was just a spray painted white Batman. Yeah. With Joker markings, which they're selling at the Entertainment Earth booth, yeah. so it's that's the first I've seen of it. Period. Just now, so yes. yeah, it's craziness. We've, we've taken David aback with, uh... <laughs> but yeah, Comic Con this year is different from last year, which has been it's it's a growing process, and and it's just sort of weird. I step outside of myself a lot 
just to try to keep myself grounded and look at like how things have changed for me. It's been really, really weird. Very weird. You've got you know a really popular Power Man and yeah. Fist Race and Nighthawk. Yeah. And well, although I mean, if you don't want to talk about this, I understand. You've been at the center of what I call you know it's like our our country's political idiocy <laughs> right now. Um, you've been posting about it a lot. So, yeah. I mean, you know, do you. It's you know it just it, it is what it is. It's it's there's there's stuff going on in the world right now that it's like how can you ignore it? How can you not talk about it? And 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 the thing is is like I've been fortunate enough to have a platform, and and I'm saying you know stuff that I that I feel is, is relevant, and some people don't want to hear it, but that's part of what makes America great. So it's like if you don't want to hear it, you don't have to buy it. You don't have to consume it. I mean there's there's things that I don't like. I don't, you know, from fast types of fast food to types of music to TV shows. I just don't watch them, and and so with Nighthawk especially, there's some people who are like really bent out of shape because they think it's that, that I'm making some sort of political statement, and it's like no, I'm the the political statement that's being made was is, is made every time a cop shoots an unarmed black person. That's a political statement. When, when I say Black Lives Matters and someone steps up and says, corrects me and says all lives matters, no, that's that's political. Uh, me writing a comic, there's nothing political about that. Like, if, if you anyone who mistakes that and thinks that I'm trying to be political in my comics doesn't know me that well. And, and, and more importantly, they don't know Marvel that well because Marvel is not going to let me go as far as I would go if this was my own book. You know, Marvel's letting me push the, the envelope, and I am super appreciative of that. Axel has been really, really supportive. Everybody's been really, really supportive. And and I just I find it interesting that, that people are offended by what I'm writing and it's like there's far more offensive things out there in the world. And and if and if you're upset by comic books, how much do you how, how do you feel about the real world? Because the real world world real world is far and I'm not talking the MTV show. I'm talking I'm <laughs> talking know, the world Outside, Although I, yeah, I, yeah. I get upset by that show sometimes. <laughs> but, but you know, so yeah, I find the whole thing very, very. Um, it's just, it's just disheartening to me. But it's also, but the support that I've gotten and the love that I've gotten, especially, um, I mean, for Power Man, Iron Fist has been incredible, and and that book has been really well received. For Nighthawk, it's been especially uh, gratifying because. Um, because the opposite end of the spectrum is true as well. The, the hate for that book has been so phenomenal that um, it's, it's like, wow. It's like, if I actually paid attention, this might disturb me. But I, I've learned how to block that out. I have a thick skin. I've got friends who watch out for my best interests and tell me, don't, don't look, you know, uh, don't go to this website. And, and, and if I see, you know, people tweet stuff at me all the time and I just... You know, I get it. I get rid of it. I don't. I don't. I don't need to consume that hate. If I'm going to consume them, consume something that's bad for me, I will go to a fast food restaurant or whatever, and I will eat that sort of. I'll, I'll get. I'll get my meal from AMPM or from Seven Eleven. I'll eat hot dogs from Seven Eleven. If, if that's the sort of garbage well, I will put in my just body. Up Fifth Street. You yeah. But but in terms of hate and negativity, I'm not going to go for that. I, I don't have time for it. So. Yeah. yeah, so that's that's that. And with all that's going on, are you gonna, do you have any time to get back into film at all? I mean, because that's we talk about it. I've got a couple of projects I'm doing with some friends, but there's a, there's some creator-owned comics that I want to do, and I've, I I kind of discovered that I I like comics 
far more than I ever thought I would like. I, I like. Let me rephrase this. I like comics a lot more than I thought I would, and I definitely like it more than I like film. And that's not to say that I hate film, but there's a process and, and a time constraint and a financial constraint that that doesn't work for me. I have the patience to do comics. I have the patience to do film too. But I, I just there's something about it. There's uh, comics is the medium I fell in love with as a child. So I, I go back to that, and I think that it's um, you know it's it's going back to Planet of the Apes, right? I grew up watching those movies on TV, but they were only on TV maybe once or twice a year if you were lucky. But I, I would read my Planet of the Apes comics all the time. You know, that's that's how I... And, and in those magazines, they had those articles, and that's how I learned about film, was in, in, in those... Yeah. That and magazines like Famous Monsters of Filmland. And so to me, um, there's something about the print medium... And, and it, it doesn't even have to be print anymore. It can be digital. But it's, it's that combination of words and pictures just just really gets to me and, and in a positive way. And, and uh, so if a film opportunity comes up, I take it. I, I jump on it. But there's enough comic stuff. It's keeping me super busy. So why would I bother, well, you know? Absolutely. What, what book are you reading? Not yours. <laughs> Not mine. totally jazzes you right now. Um... Good golly, what is... I, I, I'm having a lot of fun reading Doctor Strange. Um, Jason Aaron's doing a great job on that book. And, of course, I'm drawing a blank. Um, there's, uh, there's, there's, I, I'm going back and rediscovering um, a book from the, the 80s called Gun Fury, um, which nobody seems to remember. But they just started uh, putting that out digitally, and, and it was this really weird parody book that I loved. Um, but a lot of it's been, believe it or not, I've just been reading just tons of old Power Man and Iron Fist comics, um, because it's 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 getting back into those characters. And now I'm doing another book for Marvel that's requiring me to read. I can't even tell you what books I'm I'm reading just to get into the minds of the characters because we've only announced one member of the team so far. So and 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 so that's been fun because I've been reading a lot of Hawkeye. Yeah, Hawkeye is is on Occupy is on the team of Occupy Avengers, but there's other oh. team members that have yet to be announced. They're not in the promo art, and so it's been a lot of like consuming. It's it's I've been reading more for research than I have for pleasure, and so it's um. Does Obnoxio the Clown one of the members? <laughs> Him or Forbish Man, maybe. <laughs> yeah. They deserve to come back into the continuity, I'm just saying. All right. They, the, the fact that you brought them up is kind of interesting because I had been thinking about the two of them. So, yeah, we'll see. We'll Excellent. See. Thank you, David. Thank you. And, and good luck with Tarzan on the Planet of the Apes. Thank you. Well... Uh, thanks for listening to this session. I hope you enjoyed uh, this hybrid podcast of interviews and news. And, of course, if you have any questions, comments, commentary, criticism, compliments, we do love compliments, write in to editor at fanboyplanet.com, or you can find us on the Facebook page, Fanboy Planet. You may also, of course, tweet us at fanboyplanet. I'll figure that out someday. And Instagram, if there's some picture you want to share, at fanboyplanet. Uh, and, of course, uh you listen to us on iTunes or through whatever your podcast uh, 
distributor of choice is. And if we're not on your podcast distributor of choice, please let us know. Write into editor at fanboyplanet.com. We'll see about getting placement. Anyway, rate us, review us, tell your friends, because that's how we build listenership is definitely uh, tell your friends and, and share that you're enjoying what we're doing here on Fanboy Planet. As well as if we have talked about something on this podcast that you think, I'd like to read that, I'd like to, get, I'd like to pick that up, and you can't find it at your local brick-and-mortar store, we do have handy-dandy and Amazon order box and an Amazon links uh, that can you can pick it up there, and we get a tiny little kickback from that. So please do. And if you'd like to help support the Fanboy Planet podcast and fanboyplanet.com, where you can find a page for each and every podcast, please go ahead and you can uh, donate a little on PayPal at editor at fanboyplanet.com. Uh, I think I've covered all of our legal here, right? I so think so. Uh, <laughs> that's all the things we like to say. Uh, so until our next podcast and beyond, of course, uh, I'm Derek McCaw, Editor-in-Chief of FanboyPlanet.com. And I'm Rick Bretzner, reminding you to use, use your, your powers, powers only for good. good. Thanks once again to the great Luke Ski for use of his music in this podcast. Visit Luke Ski at www.thegreatlukeski.com.